I'm Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScript, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Robert Domenico is an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at the University of Illinois at Chicago and an inpatient cardiovascular clinical pharmacist at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System. As you may recall, this incredibly accomplished scientist and educator previously joined us on CardioScripts, in fact, last December to discuss cardiology residency training, but now he has agreed to return and to talk about something possibly even closer to his cardiology-loving heart, Dijoxin. So welcome back to Dr. Domenico. Great. Thank you. So today, the basis of our conversation is going to be the, the RATE AF trial, where we haven't seen the full results in published form, but the um, results were presented on August 29th at the European Society of Cardiology meeting. A little background on this trial, atrial fibrillation and heart failure frequently coexist, and together they increase the risk of stroke, hospitalization, and all-cause mortality, especially soon after the clinical onset of atrial fibrillation. So in patients with HEFREF, we know there's a well-established role for chronic beta blocker use, and we essentially go back and forth on the role of acute beta blockade and adjunctive digoxin, particularly in patients who we know need rate control for their atrial fibrillation. But we know even less about the many patients with HEFPEF. So for many reasons, this trial was important to possibly lead to a better understanding of the management of rate control in symptomatic patients with heart failure. The methods of the RATE AFib trial were that it was a prospective, randomized, open-label, investigator-blinded endpoint, or probe design. It included patients 60 years or older with permanent atrial fibrillation and symptomatic or breathless heart failure, which was defined by investigators as New York Heart Association class 2 or greater. The key exclusion criteria were a heart rate that was less than 60 beats per minute or the need for beta blocker based on um, an EF or recent MI or something else. The primary endpoint was the 36 item short form health or SF36 quality of life measure. And this is a general measurement of health related quality of life, which was chosen over atrial fibrillation or heart failure specific measures given the comorbidity in this patient population. Secondary endpoints were echocardiographic ventricular function, exercise capacity, and biomarkers, as well as individual components of the quality of life measures. And I think important for us as pharmacists, they had an exploratory outcome of the correlation of serum digoxin concentration with change in quality of life as well. Eligible patients that were included were randomized to digoxin or bisoprolol as the beta blocker and followed for 12 months. Ultimately, they enrolled 80 patients in both arms with a mean age of 76 and about 46% were female. The heart rate reductions seen in each group were similar at 12 months, and the principal finding, the primary outcome of patient-reported quality of life, was similar between both groups with a p-value of 0.3. Some of the quality of life measures did favor digoxin at 12 months, but as far as key secondary endpoints, New York Heart Association class was statistically significantly improved with the digoxin compared to beta blocker, as well as N-terminal pro-BNP. Adverse events were lower in the digoxin arm than in the beta blocker arm, with digoxin patients experiencing 29 events compared to 142 events in the beta blocker group with a p-value of less than 0.001. 
The author's interpretation was that in patients with permanent atrial fibrillation, digoxin compared with beta blocker, although it failed to improve quality of life measures at six months, did show some important improvements in quality of life at 12 months and was associated with greater reductions in New York Heart Association class as well as NT pro BNP. And patients experienced fewer adverse events. So the clinical significance of this is, is really hanging out there. And I, I guess my first question to you would be to just get your overall impressions of this trial. So, you know, I mean, I, I think this is sort of an interesting and somewhat surprising, depending on your perspective, trial. You know, I feel like digoxin has been the punching bag of cardiology and heart failure for the last probably 10, 10 15 years. And most people, when you set this trial up, you, you would expect the beta blocker arm to really outweigh and outshine the digoxin uh, arm. And that's actually not what, what they saw. Now, keep in mind, you know, this is a small study, 160 patients, and a lot of the actual event rates, you, know, you gotta take that into context. But it, you know, it was done in a relatively high, a higher risk population in terms of age and, and some of those types of things. And so it does maybe give a little bit of comfort based on what we've seen, which is limited from the European Society of Cardiology, but it gives a little bit of comfort to suggest that DIG may be an effective alternative to what we often do is beta blockers, is first-line therapy in this case. Even though the outcomes are, you know, infrequent or are limited in a study sample size of 160, the fact that there were so many fewer adverse events in the digoxin arm compared to the beta blocker arm, I thought was sort of interesting and, um, again, reassuring. As a cardiology pharmacist and one of the, the, the oldies that still remembers DIG being used like water, I, I'm very interested to find out a little bit more about digoxin levels and target dosing and things like that. We don't have a lot of information along those lines, so I'm interested to see the paper and how that shakes out. But you know, my suspicion is that based on what we, what we saw from the initial trial presentation, I suspect that the, the target dosing and levels that were achieved were on the lower end of the therapeutic range, consistent with what we've seen in the heart failure studies with did, you know, the DIG trial and, and that sort of thing. While we're talking about levels, I think we would be remiss if we didn't use your expertise. What level do you target in patients with, let's just focus on patients who have atrial fibrillation with or without heart failure? My, my approach over the years, uh, really, based on the DIG trial, which I know is focused on heart failure, not atrial fibrillation, is that that should be the target, honestly, for atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter as well. It's my own personal belief. I don't have a ton of data to back that up. However, you know, when you, <clears throat> when you look at a lot of the evidence that's come out, uh, observational studies, meta-analyses, uh, looking at DIG and trying to associate that with increased mortality and increased in cardiovascular events. Those studies actually currently done in the atrial fibrillation population uh, have, there's really kind of a scant number of studies that have looked at the, the effect of DIG level on those outcomes. The handful that have actually suggest some, the data suggests very similar outcomes to what was observed in the DIG study with heart flare. And that is lower levels seem to be associated with either improved event rates or lower event rates or, you know, no difference as opposed to higher levels where 
um, again, there's an association with, you know, increase in event rates with DIG at the higher dosing. And so, you know, we've kind of advocated for this. I've personally have advocated for this for years, and I usually get a little pushback because there's this theory out there that I can get better rate control with higher doses, and that's not really accurate. And then when you compound that with what we, what little we know about DIG levels and, and overall like hard endpoints, I, I still recommend, you know, targeting levels less than one is what we usually uh, suggest. And I, I think like you mentioned, some of the early data we had was in those HEF-REF patients. However, analysis of those recent AFib data really compound what you're saying. So targeting at least less than 1.2 and ideally less than one seems reasonable. I mean, these are older, generally the AFib population or patients with comorbid AFib tend to be older than our patients with heart failure without AFib. Do you find yeah. that to be true? Absolutely. And, you know, if you look at, again, what little data is available for the rate AF patients, the mean age in this cohort of 160 patients was 76 years of age. So, you know, these are older folks that have, you know, by just age-related decline in renal function and on top of some of their other comorbidities, you can imagine, uh, my guess is CKD was, you know, a little more present in these people, which you know, raises some concerns with DIG, yet there were fewer adverse events associated with it. And at a minimum, we can say that it was as effective from a quality of life perspective compared to the beta blockers. So it's encouraging from that uh, perspective. And the, the authors did look at EF, both at baseline and then as a secondary endpoint, whether or not there was improvement. The patients in the digoxin group had a baseline EF of 56.2% on average, as, and the beta blocker group was 57.6 at baseline. So I think this really does offer maybe the first of real evidence in HEFPEF patients. So thoughts on differences in your approach to digoxin with HEFREF or HEFPEF? Yeah, and, and this is sort of a you know, surprising finding when you look at their exclusion criteria, and this is obviously why you see what you see with the EF comparisons that pre and post, you know, they excluded people that required beta blockers for HEFREF, basically. So you've kind of identified that this is a more or less a HEFPEF population. If you think back to the DIG study looking specifically at heart failure, there was a you know, subset of folks that had HEFPEF that were studied and didn't show any sort of, you know, there were no signals of benefit anywhere across the board. So the fact that, you know, this population was largely a HEFPEF population and seemed to have, you know, equal benefit to beta blockers and again, uh, perhaps lower risk of side effects, I think is, is encouraging. My suspicion, again, based on age and, and likely comorbidities, is you're dealing with a little bit more of a sedentary population, which probably lends itself better to DIG being a little bit more effective than if it were, you know, you and I who are a little younger in age. You know, the more active you are, the higher the catecholamine state or sympathetic state that you have going on, the less effective digoxin is going to be. But in a you know, population whose mean age is 76, again, I would expect that they're a little bit more sedentary and um, you know, a drug like DIG may be a little bit more effective in that group. And you know, it, I think that bears out when you look at the data from rate AF and the degree of rate control. The, the two curves for heart rate control for beta blockers and DIG were more or less superimposable. So both strategies achieved a similar degree, almost identical degree of rate control. So I think it speaks to that, regardless of whether it's half path, half ref. So I think that, again, this is encouraging. 
Rob, I think one of the things that is criticized about this rate AF trial is given the size, we don't really have any outcomes data as far as the relationship with heart failure hospitalizations or mortality. But I would say as a cardiovascular community, like you said, we've been flogging digoxin for a long time. We have lots of analysis of older data, including meta-analysis that showed digoxin in any regard increases overall mortality. But does that make this unimportant? So A, do you believe that digoxin increases mortality? And does that mean we shouldn't use it at all, especially in this elderly population where it might improve some symptoms? That's a, a great point. Being a little older and again, having a little bit more comfort with some of the older data as well as just using digoxin in general. I, I'm a little suspect with regard to some of the data uh, using or looking at digit mortality if you look specifically actually in atrial fibrillation in particular. So if you look at some of the studies that have been done and some of the meta-analyses as the observational cohorts are focused and, and some of the sensitivity analyses are done to you know, tease out some of the confounders, uh, what you end up seeing is that the, the increase in mortality, it, depending on the meta-analysis, you can always kind of um, manipulate that a little bit. But um, there was one study by, I believe it was uh, Ziff and colleagues, where as they looked at more adjustments and, and uh, you know, sensitivity analyses for the data controlling for confounders, the mortality signal kind of went away. And certainly when they focused on the uh, randomized clinical trials, there was no signal. And so you know, to me, it's, it's sort of an interesting finding then when you, when you look at, even though that this was a small population, it would go along with maybe, you know, again, using digoxin judiciously in an appropriate patient and targeting uh, appropriate levels, you may lose that signal or there may not be a, a mortality signal associated with the drug. Although it's a different drug, it's still a, you know, a cardiac glycoside. There is a study that's ongoing called the Digit AF study. They're actually looking at using digitoxin to treat atrial fibrillation in patients with HEFREF. I think the targeted enrollment is just under 2,200 patients, and it is an outcome-driven trial. And in that trial, they're targeting the lower sort of half of the uh, digitoxin range for their dosing. In fact, study parameters are requiring, you know, mandating getting levels. And if patients cannot achieve the desired level with different dosing strategies, they're actually excluded from the trial. So they're making a concerted effort to really target that. And maybe that'll shed a little bit more light on the use of cardiac glycosides, in particular digitalis uh, agents in atrial fibrillation at a specific targeted range. Um, and so we'll, we'll see. I, you know, I, I, that, that, like I said, that trial is ongoing. I'm not sure how, how close it is to being completed, but it, it too will shed some more light on, on this idea. And I, you know, for a long time when we've taught pharmacy students about the use of digoxin, both for atrial fibrillation and for heart failure more specifically, we've talked about it as sort of a feel-good drug. And so I personally just like that this rate AF trial is consistent with what we've been talking about for years in that it may or may not affect mortality, but we certainly have a lot of evidence that it makes people feel better with heart failure and um, now with AFib with heart failure. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I don't think that the rate AF study is going to suddenly, you know, lead to a, a dramatic spike in digoxin use in atrial fibrillation or in, in heart failure. Um, in fact, you know, the data that, you, you know, we discussed earlier and alluded to with regard to mortality has had the opposite effect. If you look at 
you know, usage rates um, in both populations, they've gone down pretty significantly over, over uh, many years. Um, but I, I do think, again, that this lends a little bit of support that if you use it appropriately uh, in carefully selected patients, it's no worse than beta blockers and maybe safer uh, than beta blockers. So it gives you a little bit of that comfort, again, based on a small sample size. But, um, you know, I, I feel a little bit more comfortable with uh, the results. And I think it supports in some ways what, what I think uh, the role is in, in this setting. So any final thoughts that you'd like to add about um, this trial or your use of DIG, any clinical pearls for folks or anything you want to make sure our listeners hear from you? I guess my point is, you know, don't put that final nail in the coffin yet for, for DIG. If anything, I think this pushes a couple nails out and makes you question it. If you are going to use it, I, again, would advocate for targeting levels that we associate with benefit in heart failure, and that is levels of less than 1 or 0.5 to 1 um, are typically the range that we target in part because that's what, where I believe the sweet spot is for digoxin benefit. But you have to be wise in you know, who you select and, and how you dose it. As long as you dose it appropriately, and I'll get a you know, shameless plug in for our digoxin dosing nomogram, um, there are several out there, but you know, I, it, there are simple ways to dose dig appropriately to help achieve the desired levels and hopefully the desired effects as you see in uh, this study and in ongoing studies. Well, thank you very much for being on today, and we appreciate your sharing your expertise on digoxin with us. Anytime. Always a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.